Well, the new year is a time for resolutions. That's what we always do. We take stock of where we want to go in, in this new year. We want to put things back on track. We want to clean out clutter. Uh, we all feel that sense of openness to maybe start again, if you will. And I ran across Psalm 25 a couple of weeks ago, and it seemed like an appropriate embodiment of a kind of prayer for the new year. So I wanted to use the first seven verses of it this morning, and we'll be actually having the opportunity to pray those first seven verses together at the end of my, my sermon. But in some ways, this text, I, I look at it and I hear in it a, kind of a resolution under which all of our other resolutions fit as people who want to orient our lives toward God. It's kind of a prayer that says, let my life be oriented toward God. I, I want all my decisions to grow out of the decision to seek God's way and to walk in God's path. And so let's look at Psalm 25, verses 1 through 7. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to apprehend and receive that gift of your kindness that you so freely offer, which often we, it is the thing of which we fail to take note. Lord, root us and ground us in your love and so inspire us through that mercy that fosters mercy that we can share with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the, the big questions that Jesus invites his disciples to deal with, one of the questions that we hear him asking both overtly and tacitly and in much of, of his teaching is the matter of how one measures the value of his or her life. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he kind of asks the question over and over again, what are you going to go after? What will you value? And what will be your signs, your metrics for success? He invites reflection on those things in many of his parables, in much of his, his teaching with his disciples, even in his works of the various miracles, he, he really invites a reflection on those kinds of questions. But then he also asks a bigger question. 
Suppose you come to a conclusion about those matters of success and you find in the end that in acquiring all of them, you have lost your soul. You have lost the very life that you have tried to sustain through those kinds of things that you have gone about acquiring. He asks it very profoundly in Matthew 16. It, in the end, if you found that you've lost your soul and, and really haven't lived, is, is what you've acquired worth anything? It's kind of like Psalm 62, where the, the psalmist says, you know, people of high estate are but a breath, people of low estate are but a delusion, in the balances they go up. In other words, if you put those who the world measures as infinitely successful materially on one side of a balance scale and the poor on the other side of the balance scale, neither side outweighs the other ultimately in God's scheme of things. But in the balances, they stay even. <laughs> or if one is on one side and God is on the other side, you know, in the balances, they go up. And, you know, it's interesting to look at that image that you see in, in ancient iconography of God sort of holding a scale and measuring the value of our, of our lives. That, you see that in icons on, on cathedral walls and, and things like that, the whole notion of, of the scale. And sometimes I think as religious people, we imagine God holding that scale and that scale being our lives and God measuring our lives in terms of what we've done right and the sins that we've committed. And that, that somehow, and this is certainly what's there in the imagination of, of the church down through the centuries, that, that somehow God holds that scale for all of us and that if we do well and our lives are a, of substance, that will show on the scale. If sin outweighs those things, then that will also show on the scale. That image of the scale is really not a, a very good image to talk about what God really does with us and how God really values us. Because that measure is as problematic as the measure that says material wealth ultimately is what we should be seeking after. If life is measured by our good deeds and sins on one side of the scale and good deeds on the other, that life is therefore a matter of trying to impress God. Life is about avoiding sins. And that's really what a lot of resolutions are about, isn't it? <laughs> we kind of identify our besetting sins and we decide we're going to do different things to make those things uh, better. But it's also possible to come to the end of this life and find it wanting and feeling, frankly, a bit ripped off by being good. And the Psalms talk about this a lot, where I'm good, Lord, but the world isn't good. I'm obeying, but the world isn't obeying, so why is my life, excuse me, crap, and their life good? That's a very familiar theme in the Psalms, as they complain to God about that sort of thing. A feeling of being a bit ripped off, that the whole world is out there playing by materialistic rules and they seem to be winning. So why try to be good? Why try to impress God? Why do the right thing? 
Well, I think Psalm 25 speaks to this dilemma because there's a little bit of an edge of that in this. The psalmist, like a lot of psalmists, is feeling a bit like his good works and his choice to follow God and to keep his eyes on God really isn't making much of a difference. And in the eyes of the world, he's a loser and he feels shame about that. But Psalm 25 redirects our attention. Psalm 25 says that life is about something bigger than simply avoiding sins. It's about the realization that we are made for the heart of God and calls us to take up residence in and rest in this space in which God made us to dwell. Psalm 25 is a prayer that trains us in this work of redirecting our gaze. It's a prayer that trains us in this work of orienting our lives toward God. It it gives us words to describe, in some ways, a process of entering into that rest, entering that space like Jesus describes in the sheepfold where we are where we belong and with the one who created us or oversees us and, and the one who made us to dwell in that space. And I think there are three themes in this psalm, in the first seven verses of this psalm that are really also peppered throughout the rest of it, and and they're all pointing to whom or to what we direct our gaze. They're inviting us to turn our gaze toward, to orient our lives toward God and away from the things that would discount God's presence in our lives. And first, the first theme is is that the psalmist speaks of it as a gaze that's directed first and foremost toward God. I I lift up my eyes and my soul to you. I trust you. I walk in your path. I walk in your ways. I want to be taught by you. I'm willing to wait for you. All of those lines are in those first verses of the psalm. It's the choice to act on the belief that that if my gaze is focused on God, that if I'm watching for the work of God, that I'll have a light to my path that would not otherwise be something that I would know, that it will orient my life, that it will, as Paul says in Colossians, that there is in Jesus a kind of coherence of all things. And in this gaze oriented on God, there is that same sort of drawing together of all of life. It's kind of an organizing or centering relationship that orients and orders my choices with respect to all of my other relationships. That when my life is oriented toward God, I begin to understand not just who I am, but what the world is meant to be. So it's a gaze that's oriented toward God, but it's also a gaze that chooses not to focus on the ways of one's enemies or to take on the assessment that those enemies might have of us, which I think is the more important thing going on in the psalm here. The psalmist is inviting us to avoid the things that would bring about shame in our lives, comparison. The best road to shame is comparison. He or she is so much more than I am. 
I am nothing by comparison with them. I have nothing by comparison with them. I haven't made it. I haven't gotten it together. All of those are very shame-filled self-statements. Verse 2, the psalmist says, Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. It's the wantonly treacherous who should feel shame, not those who seek you, God. So why do I feel shame is what the psalmist is saying. Why do I feel shame? Well, it's, it's because I'm oriented toward their world and not toward my own. I'm oriented toward their definition of me rather than your definition of me, God. So here's the thing. I feel shame. I feel bad because they're in charge and they get to define me. Who hasn't felt that? I live daily with the temptation to believe that the world's definition of my value is the one I should abide by. So redirect my gaze, God. That's the prayer of the psalmist. Redirect my gaze away from the world's meanness and toward your kindness. And so finally, that last invitation to direct one's gaze upon the the mercy of God, on the truth of God's kindness. What the psalmist essentially prays is, let me see myself and my world and my enemies even as you see them, God. Help me to see and receive your mercy, and as I do so, make me merciful, kind. The interesting thing about the word mercy in Hebrew is that there's more than one word for mercy in Hebrew. And God's mercy is not simply or merely as as it's described in any of these depictions of mercy. God's mercy is not merely God's choice to withhold the exercise of his wrath. It's not merely God's choice not to incinerate us. And I think we hear the word mercy and that's what we think about. We think about somebody holding our arm behind our back and saying, say mercy, say mercy. It's what God sort of begrudgingly grants to us because it's just easier than destroying us, maybe. But that's not what mercy is in any of the words in Hebrew that it's used for. It is God's intentional decision to be kind. God's intentional decision to hold us, to carry us. There's two words in this particular psalm that are often used, words for mercy that are often used, and they're often used in conjunction with each other, and they have the same general sense of that sense of kindness, but they they have nuances that are just wonderful. The, the one word is chesed, and uh, chesed is often translated loving kindness or grace. It's the word that, that the New Testament writers picked up in Greek with the word agape, the love that, that seeks the other's best. As my preaching professor said, it's the love that makes the loved one lovely. That's what chesed is. It's steadfast love is the other way it's translated. But there's another word for mercy that's very, very interesting. It's the word racham. And racham is often translated tender mercy. 
And both of these words are used in Psalm 25, but racham is a word in, you know, again, sort of geeky Bible stuff here. But uh, if, I, if I could draw it up, there's, there's often three consonants in most Hebrew words. And the three consonants in both the word mercy and the word womb are the same three consonants. Okay, it's resh, hate, and maim. But they're voweled differently. They're pointed differently. If you've ever seen Hebrew, you see the big consonants and then you see all these little points around it. About in the 8th century, the, the rabbis put in these vowel points because they'd all kind of, I guess, forgotten how to, to read the other way. And so the vowel points are there. But the vowel points make the word for womb out of the same three letters, except they just have different vowels. A, a racham is mercy, and rachem is womb. Now, that's pretty cool. <laughs> First of all, it says, you know, don't be too quick to call God just father. I don't know many fathers who have wombs. But our God has a womb. And he carried us in it. She carried us in that womb. To know God's mercy is to know the kindness of the one who has carried us, who has made space for us, who has nurtured us. And so the, the psalm, the portion of it that I've, I read at least ends with this line. Do not remember the sins of my youth. Remember me. Be merciful. Be merciful. See me. Not just the crap I do. See me. Don't just look at my bad choices. Don't just count my sins. Remember the one you carried in your womb. And let that definition of me, O oh God, not my enemy's definition of me, Guide me in all that I do and say, be merciful to me and so teach me to be merciful to myself and to others and even to my enemies. You know, what allows a parent to continue to love a surly, disrespectful, moody, disobedient 16-year-old is that the parents know him or her at a deeper level. They know more than the current experience of the sins of his youth or her youth. That child was a flutter and a kick in her mother's womb. That child was the smiling face his father lifted to his own smiling face. God doesn't just forget the sins of our youth. God sees us, and that's mercy. God holds us in his steadfast, loving gaze. And once we know ourselves to be locked into this gaze, we ourselves learn how to be merciful. 
lives oriented toward God mirror the kindness of the one who has oriented his life toward us. Let's pray. You join me, please, in our unison prayer to pray that those lines from Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you to be put to shame, let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Amen.